Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach to their practice. We have our in-person courses coming up soon in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne, as well as all the details to join our group mentoring sessions. Check them all out on our website, tkex.org. Today, I'm very excited to chat with Rohit Murgod. Rohit's a physiotherapist and SNC coach based in the sunny coast, working in private practice and also helping field-based athletes live better with pain and improve their sports performance. We're going to dive into his journey so far, his challenges and how he manages them with direct relevance for all clinicians in private practice. And it's been my absolute pleasure to work with Rohit through our mentorship. So I'm very excited for this chat. Bro, thanks so much for making the time, mate. Damn, thanks for having me on, man. I've, I've been a big fan of the potty for a long time now, um, and it's had a big impact in my own career. So cheers for what you do and cheers for having me on. Appreciate that. It means a lot. The question thanks. I'm sure you've heard multiple times now, what's your story? It's a big one, isn't it? It's a real big one, and I've uh, adopted that same question into my own practice a little bit, so... Weird to be asked that one by someone else. But <laughs> I guess my story is um, I grew up in a very sports-oriented family. Um, that's that's all we really cared about. Academics was out the window as early as I learned to pick up the cricket bat. Um, so, yeah, we, we came over to Australia from India in 2008. Um, so it's been a journey from then to now. It's been about... Uh, not too good at maths, as you can see, but 15 years. Um, so in high school, I uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew, all I knew was I wanted to be a pro cricketer, um, a pro sports person. So <laughs> that's all I did. And after graduating year 12, I was in that pro sort of cricket track. Um, and just to, just because, you know, we're from an Indian family it's it's sort of mandatory to go to university so I picked up a sports science degree and I did that for two years while I was um, playing cricket and trying to make it in in the cricket world um, unfortunately in my second year um, of uni cricket started losing all of its appeal uh, because of the competitive a cutthroat nature and the politics and those sorts of things that made me lose a bit of love for the sport and love for sport in general, actually. So I just had a big sort of turnaround and I'm like, fuck it, I'm not going to do this anymore, not having anything to do with sports science, even though I had a year left. And it was pretty fun. I enjoyed it and just changed tracks and went straight to Townsville from Melbourne to get away from cricket as far as I could, which is quite funny. Um, but started doing marine biology for a year. And that was a complete change uh, from, from everything I'd known so far, but really got me liking science and it really got me understanding basic physics, basic chem, all that sort of stuff. And a lot of my mates there, because ultimately I, I returned to playing sport and playing soccer more than anything, a lot of my mates there were in physio. And I'm like, gosh, this seems kind of cool. Um, let's let's do that so I can stay in Townsville and not go back to Melbourne. So I switched to physio the next year and it's been a journey ever since then, really. Uh, four years, finished the degree, came out, 
came to Brisbane with my fiance who I met at uni, which was probably one of the best things that came out of it. Um, but yeah, so it's my second year of practice now. Um, I've done both years in private practice. It's, it's a unique journey in a way because I've already had about four different jobs in, in two years. Um, I think the first job I did uh, was, was at, a, at a big clinic that was very much entrenched in the biomedical narrative, um, uh, very much into upper, upper and lower cross syndrome very much into, hey, you need to see clients two times a week or three if you want, if you're good. And that was how they how they put it, if you're good. Um, and, yeah, and, and weirdly, this was one of the best things that, that's happened to me. I got let go from that job in about two months because they didn't have enough patients. Um, they didn't have enough traffic coming through the clinic. They had hired too many new grads. And I was the one, one of the people to get the cut. Um, so from there, I went from the frying pan into the fire, into into my second private practice job. And it was almost worse, almost worse, because now my autonomy was completely taken away. There was no sort of focus on research, no focus on PD, which was the case in the previous clinic. It was just misguided PD, I guess. Um, and in this place, it was it was horrifying. Um, it was it was quite bad. the The practice manager used to tell me how many people I needed to see uh, per week. They used to tell me how to treat osteoarthritis. Uh, they were not a clinician, by the way, at all. And they're like, "Yep, you need to you need to see this type of condition twice a week. You need to see this type of condition four times a week, something like that." And it was a lot of cold calls. The patients, <clears throat> it was it was just a bad bad vibe, and you know I was forced into that job by necessity because I got let go from the previous job. Um, and then after that one, six months after that one, again I think I jumped into a, a better place. I think, um, but here there was a different set of challenges, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the future, um, well, in this podcast I'm in, um, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have found this place in a way because it's taught me a lot, but it's also time to be moving on from this place um, to, to newer challenges and hopefully a, a better uh, work-life balance and a better uh, way to, to help people. I guess that's that's my story. That's, that's me here. Wow. And mm. uh, it also is credits to your commitment to learn and your dedication and how curious you are. I forgot that you're only two years out. So that's amazing. That's a feedback from you, I guess, from our sessions. And fuck, you had a terrifying, horrifying experience. I think that's um, appreciate your honesty because I think these uh, experiences for listeners now, they can, I'm sure, resonate and relate to um, where there's the theme that I'm hearing is like lack of autonomy and I guess different value systems where you had PD, but it was kind of misguided PD or you weren't like there, there was no time for professional development for reflecting on cases. There was no kind of training kind of thrown into the deep end and basically told what to do. So you're just like another cog in the machine. Um, yeah. That shitty experience. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, yeah. I, I don't wish it upon anyone, but at the same time, learned a lot. Yeah. Mm. And if we rewind a little bit with, with uni and also like reflecting on those experiences, did what do you feel uni maybe prepared you for and what do you feel it didn't prepare you for? There you go, pros and cons. Okay. Mm. Mm. I think uni definitely sort of opened my mind to to the scientific aspect of things and actually just getting my eyes on on research articles, uh, just knowing the basics about it um, because I guess even though it wasn't the, the best way to, to do it in my opinion because it was just very, uh, very much criteria-focused and very much um, results-focused, it was still enough to, to get me by, you know, to, to get me through... Um, to get me understanding the basics of reading, of reading research and, and understanding it. Um, I guess uni also did a, a good job of showing me how people used to practice and how they used to think and why that may not always be a bad thing and how that could be uh, an unhelpful thing, really, because... If I just sort of went straight into the, the type of stuff that we've been through, right, which is uh, the biopsychosocial model and that sort of stuff, then I wouldn't be as um, aware of, of how other people are actually practicing out there um, and, and what narratives my patients might be receiving in different places, like where they're coming from. I wouldn't have that privilege. Of knowing where they're coming from here i've sort of uh made the same mistakes i've, I've learned the i've learned the biomedical ways and now I'm, I'm on the other side of things hopefully where i can be like okay I, I hear where you're coming from i know where you're coming from i know what the practitioner who's uh treated you in the past is coming from but okay this is this is what we are doing now i think that's a really good thing about uni it's almost like a history and appreciating the history of how I guess we used to practice or what we used to think. And it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just a, allows for greater understanding as to the narratives that you now hear every day in clinical practice and on, on the internet and just friends and family in general and like uh, preparation for these narratives and these beliefs and these assumptions and maybe some expectations so then you can like have more time and be armed with responses to them as opposed to being so surprised to hear all the uh, outdated narratives had you not come across a bit more of the historical context of Correct. we'll say msk pain uh, rehab yeah absolutely i find that super helpful hmm. and with the Things that you were struggling with at the start, if we maybe re well, we rewind it already. So we go back, we go forward, fast forward a bit to first year out, some of the struggles, some of the clinical <laughs> challenges that you had from memory, uh, reliving as much as you're willing to. <laughs> yeah, it sounds yeah, like quite, no, quite the experience that you've had. Um, yeah, <laughs> what were some of the things that maybe like on, with hindsight bias now, reflecting on it mm. based on what you know now, what, what, what were, were the biggest challenges? Sure. I think the first thing was how um, 
how I sort of identified a good physio to be and what I was aiming towards being. I think that was a big thing because all of my tutors at uni, people that I looked up to, uh, lecturers, you know, they were they were all these really smart people that could cite research at the drop of a hat. They could look at a person and automatically know, you know, what's what's quote unquote wrong with them, um, and how to quote unquote fix them, <laughs> right? And to me, that speed was something that I associated and that knowledge was something that I associated with being a good physio. And that was what I was trying to emulate in my first year out. So I guess straight out of uni, uh, the practice that I was working at, it had two head physios there that were very similar in to, to what my lecturers were at uni. And I just felt like such a pleb. Like I was like, oh God, I, I know nothing. You know, this is horrible. Like, how am I even supposed to help people? Like, I really don't know anything. And not to my own horn, but I was a pretty good student at uni. But I still felt like I knew nothing because they were just outstripping my, you know, my understanding. And it almost felt like they had a had a bit of a hierarchy system there, like head physio, oh, sorry, principal physio, level three physio, level two physio, level one physio, sort of like that. And your job was to move up that that ranking, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm setting myself a goal. I'm going to be a level three physio by the time I'm done with year one, which is like unheard of. I'm like, no, nah, going to do it. And all I did was like pour over anatomical things and pour over, um, you know, pathologies and different uh, biomedical things that I could lay my hands on. And I just felt worse and worse because that wasn't translating into getting or helping anyone, really. You know, it just almost, I felt, I almost felt bad in a way because one particular client that I had was a 14-year-old boy and he came in with, you know, heaps of different quote-unquote issues that weren't actually issues I understand now. They were just natural anatomical variations or natural movement patterns. Um, but me, I go and pick up all of these different issues and I lay them out in front of him and his mum and they go, God, he's really broken, isn't he? And me, like an idiot, nods my head. You know, I go, yep, this, yep, this is what you need to do to, to fix yourself. And that has haunted me ever since I realised the error of my ways. Man. That's, I apologise to that guy if he's, if he's listening to this, which he won't be. But that's just... That was tragic. Um, so I guess in that period of time, it was about really trying to improve my knowledge. And I think a lot of my colleagues are actually stuck in that phase still. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's just a bad place to be. It's not great for you. It's not great for anyone. Um, and in there, that was when I was introduced to the word client retention, which is probably a favourite amongst all of our listeners here, I'm sure they've heard it before. Um, and that was that was pressurising. That was absolutely pressurising. So from that, that was the challenge number one, client retention. That now has become uh, dealing with a large volume of, of patients. So now it's not about quote-unquote retaining. It's now about, holy shit, how am I getting through each and every day? Uh seeing approximately 15 people a day and it's just 
it's impossible. I'm sorry, but and and you know what? It's it's really funny because the seniors will be like, "Hey, uh, if you're not keeping up with it, there's something wrong with you." You know, and that's you're just not made for private practice or something like that. And that's how I used to think. I'm like, no, I've just got to harden up, got to keep up with this, you know. And after talking to you, actually, it was it was made apparent that that's not the case. And since then, it's it's been a bit easier because I'm not so hard on myself. But um, I'm sure there are people out there who are who are absolutely hard on them, hard on themselves. And hopefully, they hear this and go, "Yeah, nah, that's not on." Yeah, absolutely. So two challenges. Yeah, yeah, two challenges. Um, patient retention has gone to coping with the load. Wow. It's, um, I guess if there is a, a set formula for, for practice, um, it, there's like a classification, classification system. Um, Brendan talked about his one where he had an Excel file. Um, he sometimes goes through in our course of different conditions and then different exercises and prescriptions and like solutions to each condition specific. So then it provides that certainty so I imagine if you're in that world of like, duh, it's so obvious, like this is the anatomy, this is the pathology, this is the solution, this is the fix. And there's like, it's like a linear, here's the problem, here's the fix. Then you don't really need to listen to people's stories. You don't really need to account for individual variation. You don't need to f- like involve emotions or feelings. Like what's that? Even though pain involves literally sensory and emotional experiences. Um, you don't need to have any like challenging conversations because it's a very simple script that you follow. So I think uh, I can imagine what it's like to be in that world. I wouldn't want to practice like that and treat humans like that. And I think it it makes caring professionals like yourself suffer because you're like, this isn't the best way of dealing with humans. And you know that something's wrong, but you don't know exactly what is wrong and then you get told what's wrong is you you're not fitting into this linear system um and damn yeah i'm sure that resonates i know a lot of colleagues clinicians who are stuck in that kind of nine to five cycle and they they just don't have time to think they don't have time to reflect they don't have time for self-care boundaries let alone um and they're also kind of shamed into like it's it's your fault you should know more you should just use your tools and skills don't be afraid just do that more um yeah did did any of that resonate as a from from your experience and working in that system it absolutely did it absolutely did especially the have more tools narrative uh that is very very prevalent uh, from what I've experienced, absolutely, it's it's literally you know I've gone from um, people suggesting that I uh, learn dry needling, learn laser therapy, learn ultrasound, um, use ISDM like the uh, the tools to massage, um, you know do cross friction friction massage or different manual therapy techniques, um, or just learn different uh, types of exercise uh, regimes like because um, I don't want to demonize manual therapy or anything like that but 
you know, exercise is in kind of the same boat if people use it like that. Uh, what's it called? I don't even remember. It's like myofascial slings and things like that that incorporate uh, that exercise is incorporate then. Um, yeah, so so been through that, uh, been through the whole idea of um, trying to increase the tools in my toolkit, and that definitely resonated. Yeah, I'm sure there are heaps of people out there doing that too. Yeah, and and not to like you mentioned, not to demonize any intervention. It's more the frameworks that you have and the reasons for using them. And exercise can still be very much because, like Brendan's list was all exercises. So mm. it can very much be still within that biomedical um, fixer narrative that doesn't incorporate that that human humanistic aspect. Um, mm. Damn, and it's so easy to f- like fall for those kind of just the the narrative of I'm not good enough or yeah. I'm dumb. Like what I recall you mentioned in, in your first or second clinic where you had like other people who were quote unquote good clinicians. So they would just look mm. at someone or just assess gait and be like, okay, you this is this, this is this, and this is here. And that's your solution. And bang. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it took them like five minutes to assess. And with what you know now, that's, that's, Highly, highly, highly unlikely. It, I can imagine it being likely in some scenarios, but it's very highly, highly, highly uh, unreliable <laughs> and yeah. uh, not based on scientific consensus. Um, and it's fascinating that that's how we viewed expertise. And I also share that as an EP, that I, I want to know the special exercise, the correct exercise, the best exercise, and be the best EP. And that efficiency was part of that Um where do you feel that idea of a good clinician, where do you feel that came from? For me, it was uni and my own experiences and just like socioculturally biomedical beliefs um, mm. where obviously the expert is someone that knows what's wrong, mm. but that was just my worldview. But w- yeah. W- w- what do you feel? I think, hmm. Yeah. I think socioculturally a huge one for me. Um, in, in terms of, like, my friends and my family, they always, you know, if they're talking about a good doctor or if they're talking about a good clinician, they'll always be like, man, he was so quick. He just did this or that or she just looked, you know, into my nose and, and they knew the, the problem and they cauterized it and we're done. You know, how good? Or um, my mum going to the physio, she, she, in the past, she's like, oh, yeah, she's really good. She knew what she was doing. I was in and out 20 minutes, man. My, my, my knee feels better. I was awesome. And to me, it was always that the, the thing that was um, really highlighted was the speed. It was always the speed and how knowledgeable they seemed to, to the patient, you know. And I remember my mom saying, literally, she was like, uh, I don't really understand what she said, but sounded good <laughs> and I'm like right they've, they've literally just dazzled her with, with jargon um, and yeah it's just yeah so I think from, from my perspective definitely uh, sociocultural and yep uni as well for sure I, I totally agree with you um, that was promoted at uni um, uni is a big from my perspective as a student it was a big ego first like among students uh amongst uh, the the lecturers um 
I don't know, amongst the lecturers, but we, we definitely rank them um, as, to, hey, this one's higher or this one's not as good based on what they what they knew or how they how they spoke. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's my that's my perspective. Yep. Yep. I think it starts from uni. I had a lecturer that would never say the word um or ah or stutter and would cite the shit out of everything to do with his area of expertise. And I was like, whoa, you are God. And I would look up to that. So knowing like all I know now, it's almost, almost an opposite kind of role model that I would look up to now. I, I'm curious oh, yeah. for, for what, what a good clinician would do or look like now to you mm. based on what you know. Um, how, how would you, how would you describe is, a, a good clinician starting? That points? is a great question because honestly, it, retrospectively, it's completely flipped around now. For me, it's someone now that is caring, that is empathetic, um, like genuinely cares, it's, you know, isn't just uh, just trying to, to, to fix a problem or solve a problem or anything like that, um, treats the person as a person, as weird as that sounds. Um, and I would say reflective listening, that would be a big one. Um, I definitely see people like yourself or Greg Lehman, Adam Meekins, um, Ben Cormack, um, Eric Mira, and even a couple of physios that I've got the pleasure of knowing in real life, um, how they talk about their clients or how they talk about certain topics, how they talk about uh, their own opinions, which is really fascinating. I think that's a big one for me now is that they're not so uh, certain. They're not so, this is it, you know, which is what I previously associated with uh, with success or with uh, with being a good clinician is, is the absolute certainty, you know. And now it's, it's very much about uh, how comfortable they are with the uncertainty. Um, I think that's a big one. Communication skills, that's a huge one for sure. Um, and how how easily someone can can simplify a topic. I no longer uh, highly. I mean, there's there's a common place for it, but I, I value more the ability to to simplify and um, condense a topic as opposed to just whacking out weird words that are completely uh, going over my head in a way you know and and to me i'm like all right you know what audience you're talking to why are you talking like this <laughs> it's it's just is it for your own ego or do you just not realize like yeah might be two sides to a coin but i think a lot of people talk like that for their own ego but that gets my perspective again hopefully i'm wrong um but yeah yeah hmm. the communication skills and the interaction skills that are I'm I'm going back to the example of like the the expert clinician that would just know what to do without even asking or without mm. even like properly um, reflecting and with full certainty. It's it it is almost the polar opposite. Um, it's such a paradigm shift now to to look at like the values and the the, the qualities in clinicians that 
you now role model and that, that you now look up to rather um, who are role models. It's, um, it's fascinating. And like, feel free to name drop any of the local clinicians We've probably had a few on our podcast already. Um, but yeah, there's, it's, it's such, such a shift. It's um, it, looking back at maybe row it from fourth year uni or first year based on just that part of like what makes a good clinician what what helped you transition into admiring or valuing those kind of qualities so at that time what would have been helpful like if you had met adam meekins fourth year uni would he have had the same impact what what do you think in fourth year of uni if i'd met Adam Akins or listen to a part or something. I don't think it would have had the same impact in all honesty because it would have definitely had an impact. Like I definitely would have started questioning things a lot more because the moment I started hearing these opposing views, it just sort of clicked for me and I went, holy shit. Okay, this is why that didn't really, didn't really feel because um, I had a lot of questions. I always had a lot of questions. I was very much like, why, why is training the BMO going to help my knee pain? Like, how does that work? Is it, is it, is it pulling on something? Like, what's going on here? Um, and why does it not work for everyone in, in every context? That was always my question. And when I heard Mix and Lehman and people like that talk, it clicked straight away. So... I'm not sure if it would have had the impact it had on me in first year because I was able to put those things into practice straight away um, with with patients in real life and hear their feedback. And that feedback drastically changed. Um, it honestly, like, it just felt a lot better to to acknowledge a person's experience and to acknowledge everything that comes with pain um, and to help them work through those things as well as uh, the more tissue-based things, I guess. So that felt a lot better from my my end. I guess I'm wired a little bit like that. Um, but, yeah, I guess I, I don't know if I answered your question. Um, definitely would have impacted me, but in a different way, I think. Yeah, I think you needed that experience, and, and I, I'm also – as I ask these questions, reflecting back on my own experience, I think I would have needed the examples and the like lives and stories and histories and, you know, cases with, um, with those interactions and then to experience it for myself, how different it felt to, I guess, have that more traditional expert hat on of like, I know what's wrong with you. These are, this is the whole list and here it is. And this is what we need to fix versus the more interactive, reflective, human person-centered approach. And I think I also share that the, the latter is so much more satisfying. There's benefits to that. It just feels better. Um, if, I don't know, maybe it's because I get ignored sometimes, but I feel like I'm not ignoring the person if you're just acknowledging them. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe that, that feeling that you get from like being with someone and like being present and acknowledging the tissue-based pathologies as well as their mm. lived experience? 
How does it feel? Oh, man, How would you describe such... that? Mm, it feels good, man. It feels really good. It feels like I'm not just repeating the same thing again and again. That's a big one. Because from a lot of my colleagues, um, you know, even at uni when people did that must clinic, because we have like a five-week uni block where we do uh, a stint in private practice, everyone was like, man, it's just backs all day. It's just knees all day. It's just shoulders all day. And, you know, you do the same exact thing for the same, you know, quote-unquote body part or condition. And now there's just so many more options. It's not boring. It's not the same thing again and again. How can it be? It's like saying someone's fingerprint is the same, uh, you know, if you've got pain here, your finger, you know what I mean. Like it's, it's saying we have the same fingerprint and it's not the case. Everyone's got unique fingerprints. So, of course, their experiences are unique and hence their pain is probably unique too. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good feeling. It's, it's, very, it's very invigorating, I would say. That's the perfect example of treating humans and people, not just body parts. And it shows in the language that we use to describe them. Um, if I wanted to go into the, the more current challenge of seeing 15 plus patients a day. Um, and mm. I think if we were back into that former traditional model of care that, you know, the, the expert that knows what's wrong, I feel like that would be much easier and it would make oh, complete God, yeah. sense to do that. So w- why is it so hard now? Um, mm. And also, like, why is that a, like a, a good thing that you're you're struggling <laughs> to actually hard. listen, right? <laughs> why is yeah. that a good thing that yeah. it's a struggle? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think you said this on a recent podcast that you did um, with Emily and the other EP. Andrew, on research to Andrew? practice. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. You said listening is hard. Listening to it's it's it's. It's really, really tough. It's heavy stuff. Those are your words, not mine. And I think that was put perfectly because honestly, man, like listening to a person's experience and taking that on board and digesting it is really, really tough. It's really difficult. And I think just accepting that fact for me was was huge um, because I'm like, okay, well, I'm actually fucking trying. It's not it's not me being, being a dropkick, you know. It's, it's how it is. Um, and having 15 people a day is just ridiculous when you're trying to do these types of things. And I've definitely thought about, hey, if I taught, oh, sorry, not taught, if I if I practiced the way that I was taught, um, shit, this would be easy. I'd, I'd pump through these. I'd get everyone done in 20 minutes flat, get them out, do my notes, be happy, you know, and I'd get through to the next day without much grief. I'm like, I must be a sadist here. I'm definitely putting myself through things. <laughs> um, yeah. So mm. it's genuinely caring. It's like you yeah. mentioned that care and that the ability to acknowledge more than just the body part. It requires time, and that listening itself is a load, just like any lifting load. Just like any physical load, mm-hmm. it's a it's a cognitive, emotional load that it again it would make sense if you're back in that mechanistic worldview where we're treating people like objects. 
and it's just the third yeah. person observe observe point of view. Um, of course, it wouldn't make any sense what we're talking about right now because you're you're not listening, and and it actually would deter you from the kind of simple uh, reductionist solution if you were to listen. You'd be like, no, this is the plan. This is what you need. And that's it. And if the plan doesn't work, it's your fault. You're a lazy patient or like you're just a challenging case, quote unquote. And then it's like, oh, come, come on. Like, um, so I think, yeah, hopefully this gives you a bit of um, affirmation like that it's not your fault, that it's oh, hard. Sure. Um, it, I imagine like trying to kind of unpack my own bias if it was like an acute traumatic injury case where you just need to refer on and like, you know, screen for the necessity for surgery or scans. Maybe you don't need mm. to hear their whole story. Maybe. For sure. So I'm, I'm, I can imagine yeah. some contexts where that kind mm. of approach is still very, very useful and helpful and applicable yep. um, and relevant. Mm. It's, it's more mm. when we're dealing with persisting pain or dealing with injuries that maybe are atraumatic or, um, you know, lasting longer than, than usual or just really it, it can be an acute traumatic injury that is causing a lot of suffering for the human involved and they're like yeah they've got all these other things happening to them and it's, it's that's where we need to listen and that's where we need time to listen i don't think it's anyone's fault mm. and hopefully for the listeners like listening on um hopefully they realize it's it's not their fault if they're like oh shit i can't get through this volume of patients i'm not good enough mm. Mm. That was my, my Man, that suffering point was, yeah, no, suffering. Absolutely. I think in response to your previous question as well, when you see suffering, like genuine like people are genuinely suffering, that just draws out the, the need to be compassionate and the need to be empathetic and the need to actually just listen and be there for them. But I think that's, that's the big thing that drives the continued struggle against time pressures. Yeah. And I, I think people that get that feeling as well, they it's it's really hard to to turn that off. I think that's really difficult. And now you're fighting yourself really because you're going to be struggling for a long time. Um if that's the case, if you're stuck in that in that place. Yeah. And like to think of people who deal with that, uh, it sounds like we're talking about the emotional suffering or we're talking about injustice when it comes to people who can't afford treatment or when it comes to all we know now about social determinants of health and we don't have the power to influence as much as we'd like. I think that that requires its own skill sets and framework and time that it deserves mm. because we also are human and we also can suffer from hearing the suffering um without going on a psychological supervision um <laughs> tangent if right. we if we go to the skill sets that you have learned oh. mm. and you mentioned a few of the the tools in the toolbox that you could have had and you still could mm. nothing inherently wrong with the tool itself um mm. what would you say you you yeah, why did you choose to learn more communication skills? Why did you choose to learn yeah. more um, like person-centered interaction skills, however you'd call them, over all the mm. other options? Yeah, okay. Um, 
interesting because I, I think number one, I'm in an echo chamber that definitely promotes communication over most other things. And number two is actually applying communication skills in, in my own practice has yielded the most return, I think, um, that, I, that I've seen in terms of helping people that, in terms of helping people um, in, in for a long-term change, I guess you could say, for a long-term outcome, as opposed to, you know, um, let's say needling someone and then being, okay, yeah, my shoulder feels great. Um, and then you never hear from them again. But with, with communication, again, it might just be the type of person that responds to those types of things. So there's, there's heaps of confounding variables here, but, you know, I've never heard back from anyone that I've needled or even though I've never needled more than two people <laughs> or, you know, I've, I've given an exercise to, to help with their pain or anything of the sort. I've never heard back from any of them. Whereas with communication, it's like they've literally typed a massive email back saying, hey, thank you for just listening. And it's it's so weird. Like that wasn't at any point in time aimed at improving their pain experience or anything like that. It was just about validating their experience and, and sort of being there for them. And just being a people person, you know, just being a, being a good human, I guess. Um, and maybe that's because they've had experiences that went completely against that. And this was just refreshing to see a professional actually listen to them. Um, maybe that was a big thing for them. But I guess once I had that experience, from my end, it was like, yep, um, this is pretty, pretty awesome. It's not just me saying it. The research is... Um, backing my experience in a way um, and all the research that I'm aware of is definitely uh, saying that it's a great thing to, to be good at communicating. It's, there's nothing saying that, hey, developing your communication is harmful. You know, that's, that's not, not a thing. So, yeah, I guess that's why I prioritise communication a bit more and, and obviously the role models that I look up to, um, the people that, I, I think uh, awesome clinicians, they are amazing at communicating. So that's definitely something I'm trying to emulate. I don't think anyone I look up to is great at um, doing a particular treatment on someone. Yeah, that, that's so insightful. The feedback, dif the differences in feedback that you get from, from patients, from clients and how the power of just listening and, and validating someone's experience and, and really responding to them uh, in a, in a holistic way and just the impact that that has on them compared to if it was just giving someone an exercise program, it's huge. And we do the exercise on top, you know, we do the hands-on stuff on top. It's just adding another layer, another complex layer to to the, the whole experience and that just seems to elevate it heaps more. Yeah. That um the yeah. communication skills, the interaction, the 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 process of it, um, rather than using kind of inter, in, I can imagine communication skills being 
kind of taught or or shown in a way that's still like you do this reflective listening and this simple reflection and this complex reflection and this is the questions that you ask make sure you ask these questions tick box um, and they could be you know open-ended emotion driven kind of questions but uh, to get the emotions and to get the, the the deeper meaning of things but it can still be done in that uh, fixer mindset so I think there's yeah. an there's an extra strength that that suggests in what you have and I think it points to the role models that you have of you care and your genuine care shows in the way that you communicate not just the communication skills mm. so um, if if we're looking at that that point you made of the echo chamber if you weren't mm. in this echo chamber say if you were on another <laughs> in another echo chamber in, in another world another dimension uh, mm. what would be like a first step that would be helpful if you weren't surrounded by people who you are surrounded yeah. with yeah man that's difficult i i definitely um feel for the people that are uh, in there um because hey it's it's hard if that's all you know that's all you know how do you how do you broaden your 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 perspective in a way? Um, I think what would be helpful is street epistemology. I think that would be a really cool video for someone to watch, um, like one one of those videos. Uh, I think that would be really cool. Just just um, maybe maybe just coming across in a post or a podcast or some resource that challenges the way that they're currently thinking or the, the way I'm currently thinking in that alternate universe. Um, that would be really cool because just, I, I don't know, like I guess my personality would be to definitely to be like, oh gosh, why am I thinking like this? Um, or why, you know, I, I would definitely question myself. Um, but maybe for people that are stuck in that in that pattern, be really difficult. Might take a few more exposures. It might take a lot of exposure, and then ultimately something clicks with their own lived experience, and maybe that makes sense to them. But it's definitely a hard place to be. I think exposure is needed for sure. That repetition and that curiosity as well to be open to challenges. Mm and different worldviews and, and hopefully something that relates to their own experiences. So it's relevant. Mm, yeah. I mean, even in the echo chamber I'm in now, sometimes I get exposed to the other side of things um, just randomly, you know, like a, a ad or something like that. And I go, what the heck? People are still thinking like this. No way. But I was thinking like that literally a year ago and I forgot about that. So yeah, it's whack. Yeah. There's, those viewpoints are, are still out there, I think. Um, and like reflecting on uh, your experience, I can see some similarities in, in the journeys that we've both come from and, and now the, the new filters and the new philosophy, the new frameworks that we have um, to make sense of of the traditional kind of biomedical viewpoints. And again, it's it's not uh, that I hope, at least with my content, that I, I don't come across as superior, that I'm still still learning and uh, my viewpoints now are, are going to be uh, outdated soon i'm sure they're probably outdated right now as we speak as the listeners are listening um <laughs> and hopefully that that 
that humility and that value of curiosity and, and continually questioning um, is, is what inspires that growth. If we look at the challenges that you hear from clinicians who, who maybe think that they're applying person-centered care and, and what might be helpful, what advice would you offer to them? Mm. Okay, cool. I think the challenges that I've heard mentioned are the big one I think is client expectations. Um, a lot of people, a lot of clinicians I've heard talk about it and colleagues are like, hey, just give the patient what they want or give, give them what they want, give them what they came in for. Because I, I totally understand, like, there, there are pressures on them, right? Like, there are KPIs that they need to meet. Um, they need to maintain the clinic's reputation. If they don't give the patient what they want, the patient might throw up a big stink and leave them like a one-star review or something like that. And then that reflects on them negatively definitely been the feel for them um i think that's a big challenge it's the constraints as well that as i mentioned the constraints of where they're working that's another one um and weirdly some people just aren't aware of what person-centered care is uh or they think they're doing it and they might not be and that's cool too i guess but my advice to to, to people or to clinicians in, in that form of things is always be open to changing your stance on certain things. I think that's a huge one. Never be so fused to an idea that it becomes a part of your identity. It is an idea. It is a working hypothesis. That's how, I guess, science works. And it, you'll, show, you'll show more strength in changing your mind with when more information becomes available. Um, than just being absolutely staunch or stubborn on, on one particular thing because that's how it's always been or, quote-unquote, I know that works, you know. What is works? What do you mean by works? That's another question. Um, but, yeah, my big my big tip, oh, not tip, but big advice would definitely be open to change and it's okay to change. It's probably awesome that you are changing. Yeah, and that that's a strength. That's a that's a skill as well to be able to to uh, separate your th- clinical identity from you. Even I think y- your story is a prime example of that, where you saw the good clinician and the kind of person that you wanted to be, and then you were able to question it and and improve it and like test it and challenge it, and then now you've grown and that the values or the the person, the clinician that you want to be has, has changed and evolved. And I think that's a good sign of any good clinician, any good human, I hope in most domains, if they're still saying the same shit years on and they haven't changed and they haven't updated, despite the world changing, that's like maybe a sign that they're kind of stuck and, and, and infused in a particular viewpoint. Um, and it's actually those that do change their minds with emerging evidence, with reliable sources, that's where the strength is, even though culturally it's seen as, you know, you're weak if you change your mind or, you know, yeah, it's like a bit a of a one. backfire effect of, yeah, you come across that? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's that's a weird thing right there. Um, yeah, so odd. I never realised that until someone said that to me. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's better to change your mind with, with better evidence. Like, huh? okay. I don't know. Yeah. 
And that the the challenges that you mentioned are so so common with the patient expectations. With the you know what what if they want a particular intervention, and that, what would you say in those scenarios? Like my mind is going to yeah, that's hard. That's and that's like also <laughs> not your fault if they're coming in to see you wanting a particular intervention. You didn't choose for them to come in to see you to want a particular intervention. And this can be exercise. This can be talk therapy. This can be any intervention. Um, what would be a, a like one little helpful advice that you would offer to someone in that boat who says no, patient expectations? I can't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's so hard, man. You, I, I almost feel like pragmatically, you've got to play it by ear, right? Like if, because you, you really do have constraints that are very, very real. Um, that you need to, uh, to respect for your for your own livelihood. I guess it's it's super real, but I do think you can always have the intention of. I don't want to say guiding them towards a particular treatment because that's not great, but I guess you could, okay, a, a better way to put this is you can always put forth options. You can always put forth options. Like, okay, informed cons- consent is a big thing, right? So you, you can't just go, all right, this is what the patient, the patient wants. This is what they're going to get. You've, you've got to make them fully aware of what the treatment is for, what they'll actually get from it, and what, we, what we're seeing in the research, I guess, and even in your experience as to how, how, this, how this particular treatment would, would help or not help for, for what they're coming in for. And is that treatment really going to help them achieve their goals? Right. And, and that's sort of how I try and work around my own conversations with, with patients. Like, for example, if someone comes in asking for a, and I'm going to use exercise here because I think that's not talked about enough, but, you know, someone comes in asking for a particular exercise to, to help their uh, knee pain, right? And they really want this specialised exercise. Now, I know that that exercise is probably going to help them in a way, right? Um, but it's not like I'll just go, okay, yep, here's, here's the explanation for this uh, knee extension. You know, you're, you're, you're firing your VMOs, you're, 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 you're working end range, you're, all these complex biomedical explanations just to keep the patient happy and then send them on their way. Instead, I can be like, hey, yeah, sure, exercise is a great option, but you've tried exercise in the past. So, so what else do we need to do to, to get you to your goals? Like you've you've done these things in the past, so so what's what's going to change this time? You know, are, are you looking for that ideal exercise? Maybe there isn't an ideal one. You know, and then we go into that whole complex topic of of multifactorial um, issues with pain and things like that. But I definitely think there are ways to navigate it. Whether or not you have the time and the energy to do that, that's a different story. And please be kind to yourself if, if that is the case, because definitely feel for you. But yeah, it's it's there is a way to do it, and you can absolutely start by just presenting um, options. So well said. It's amazing. Mm. The um, interaction skills are fucking hard as well. I think it's it's mm. it's also it helps to 
to see examples, to experience it, to, to have someone to bounce back and forth, to practice it, whether that's with a friend, a colleague, because um, it's, it's, yeah. it's not easy to do. And I still make mistakes despite investing so much time and money and effort into these kind of crucial conversations. So I think that's an amazing, helpful starting point um, to know that constraints are real and also there's ways around it depending on your context. Hmm. If yeah, I've got, I've got two more questions for you. The yep. one is yep. if person-centered care if someone felt like they were doing person-centered care, these are challenging questions. I'm also thinking and reflecting, so you can <laughs> bounce this one back to me because I'm being a bit of a dick here, putting it on the spot. But person-centered care, if someone says, I'm doing person-centered care, I'm being client-centered, mm. what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so are you asking what does it mean to be pers person-centered? Yeah, like a helpful starting point maybe i think that, that to me that sounds like they're just at a different behavior stage change they don't they don't know what they don't know so like for me that I would be like oh, tell me more what do you mean by it and we just have different yeah. definitions but that's that's my answer yeah. i'm curious what what would you say to yeah. a clinician who's like i'm already doing all this yeah i guess i would start by asking are you acknowledging the complexity of that person that would be a big one for, for me because just acknowledging the complexity of the complex systems that we're working with is so good. Like straight away, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, all right, what is going on here? And for people that are listening, I'm making big gestures with my hands. It's not like, okay, we're looking at it through, uh, through not through a microscope, but through a macroscope i don't think that's the thing but you know what i mean we're zooming out satellite image we're zooming out we're zooming, we're zooming out and not that zooming in is a bad thing but i also like zooming out doing both in a way um so yeah i would ask them what uh, are they acknowledging uh, the complexity of a person if so um are they implementing that that knowledge that okay that person uh is very complex. There's a lot of things going on here into planning their, their return to their goals, I guess. And are they involving or respecting that person's own lived experience in that planning process? Um, I think that's a big one and something I still struggle with, weirdly. Like, I think I'll always struggle with it. But it's, it's really hard to do because sometimes people don't want to be involved in their planning at all. Um, but weirdly, that they're, they're, they're still involved in a way, um, just in different ways, shapes, and forms. But again, super complex. Uh, don't think I answered that too well. Yeah, you, you touched on the the complexity, literally, the, the multi-directional factors that there's lots of things going on for this person. Have you acknowledged them? I think that's the first point. Acknowledge all the contributors, all the factors. Um, even if we go into a BPS through a biomedical lens of these are all the biological factors and then siloing out the psych factors and siloing out social factors, like how are you acknowledging them? Maybe that's maybe a first step. Um, and that shared decision-making is so unique and it's a dance. It's always different mm. and changing. And for uh, 
I also find that really challenging myself and you're not alone in that it's hard to find out where people are at, how confident they are in one behavior change, how willing and open they are for one belief and how different it can be for other aspects of their rehab or of their, um, of their pain even. Um, Mm. It's very difficult. It's different. It, It changes even amongst the same person that you're seeing over time, let alone for all these other individuals that you're seeing with their own complex web and network of interacting factors. That's wild. Mm. If there were advice that you, if there's advice that you would give for, for younger clinicians one or two years out, um, based on what we've just talked about, you probably already covered most of them to be honest. Um, Is there anything I've missed or anything you'd like to, to highlight for, for the listeners in, in private practice one to two years out? Yeah. I would say there's a lot of fear out there for how quitting a job would look on your resume. And I promise you, it really doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Like, trust me, I've been there. I've had other friends that have been there. I'm sure there are heaps of people out there um, that have had this happen. But don't be afraid to, to move on from a place if it's not working. Um, and, and, you know, there are ways to make it work at a place. There are ways to have hard conversations and ways to make things a little bit better for you, as, as Dan very well has taught me. But if it's just not right for you, then please move on. There's no point sticking through that crap and it won't affect you uh, as much as you staying there. You know, that's, that's a big one. Um, one more thing is... Uh, I've heard a lot of people say that, okay, you can't do a lot of PD in your first year um, because you, you're so overwhelmed with different things. Um, but, hey, I did about freaking eight different courses in my first year. And, yes, I didn't take everything in. I think you've got to be a freaking super genius to do that. But it's just helped so much. Just having exposure, even if I don't remember everything, just having exposure to those different viewpoints and different um, things, uh, it's just helped a lot. So so if you're in that category, uh, if you're in that sort of frame of mind where you're like, hey, I just want to, to, to do this and do that and do everything, I don't think it's a bad thing, really. Um, just go for it, yeah. Yeah, and um, I know about you and I hope I'm not um, encouraging this, but I've taken courses two times just to really sink in the information and the second time most more often than not the content has updated which is a great sign mm. and secondly i i get new takeaways because i've got new experiences to draw upon i think that yeah that idea that um if you if you're overwhelmed i think that's important and that maybe speaks to your yes. work context more than anything mm. um and at the same time i if you're a fourth year student you can still take courses i think it's in that that drive to be curious is is ongoing and that learning is a constant process so mm. man, that's awesome so many I, i've learned a lot myself and on the reflection and hopefully it's been a nice opportunity for for you as well to reflect on your journey so far because you've come a long way in such a short amount of time so really appreciate all your insights mate thank you great hey thanks heaps it was, it was really good i learned a lot to take good reflection and for, I hear you started a new Instagram, so you may or may not have more than yes. one. So feel free to leave the other one secret. But 
What's yeah? yeah if, if listeners are keen to to follow you to find out a bit more, you've been putting out some great content consistently. So where can we find you? Oh, thank you. Yeah, so you can find me at ro.everlasting underscore athlete on Instagram. And that's where I'll be most active. Cool. Amazing. Mate, Yeah. pleasure speaking with you. And thank I'm, you. I'm very curious to hear and to continue to to see your progress and see where you go because we need more people like you that actually care and genuinely want to keep improving. It's 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 amazing. It's inspirational to me, in the, and I'm saying that uh, as honestly as I can as a as a mentor. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I learn from you. So keep up the great work. Thanks so much, Dan. Uh, we we definitely. I'm speaking for all the new grads out here that that follow TKEX and yourself on Insta, mate, your work has not gone unnoticed or unheard and it's helping a lot of us out there. So thanks for what you do and keep at it. Super, super good. Thank you.